Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle <clears throat> against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present <clears throat> darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened in the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts that are evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is in the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplications <clears throat> to that end keep uh, keep alert with all preference making supplications for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am in an ambassador in the chains that I may <clears throat> declare it boldly as I ought to speak Ephesians 6 10 through 20 Thank you, Brian. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray, just like that passage tells us to do. Ask for help. Lord, I uh, thank you that we can gather together. We give you praise, Lord, for the time we've already had uh, this morning to, uh, to celebrate you, to glorify you. And uh, we would just ask now that you'd glorify Jesus in our, our thoughts and uh, in our hearts as we ponder these verses together, try to understand them, take them away to live uh, for Jesus. Uh, would you please um, use my, my, my efforts here and our efforts as we study this together uh, to, uh, to exalt him in our hearts and to equip us better. We look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been watching this uh, documentary. It's a, a four-part series, and I'm about halfway through it so far. It's called Age of Tanks. And as the title suggests, it's a history of the tank, the armored vehicle. And as I say, I'm, I'm through kind of the first two episodes. It takes me a long time for these things sometimes. And uh, I've learned a few things. The most surprising thing I've learned from this documentary is that uh, the earliest tanks, and they kind of really started to be used in World War I, it was when they really tried it, uh, the earliest tanks were actually pretty useless. They really didn't work very well. Uh, it seemed like a good idea in theory, right? I mean, you can see why they thought this. You know, they, you, know you just build this little mini fortress, you put wheels on it, and you send it into the battle. And uh, if you know anything about World War I, you know, trench warfare and these lines that were stalled. And, and the idea was if we send these armored fortresses into the enemy line, they'll just plow right through, and they'll be invulnerable, and nothing will be able to stop them. Uh, in practice, though, it didn't work. Uh, for one thing, they were slow. They were, they were pretty slow, some of them. The soldiers could actually move faster than the tanks could in some cases. And so if you thought the tank was going to go first, well, then these tanks were actually slowing the soldiers down. Uh, sometimes they'd get stuck. They hadn't figured out the treads. That thing didn't come, those didn't come until the Second World War. And, and so if the ground was soft or wet, they got stuck and they were heavy, so they'd just stick there. Uh, they broke down a lot. 
and you know, it was early days for the, you know, for the combustion engine, and so uh, they would break down too much. And, and then some of them were just bad designs, right? They were, they were still figuring it out. There was one model they talked about where all of the armor was in the front. So they put all the armor in the front of the tank, which is great if the enemy is polite enough to stay in front of you. But uh, as soon as they managed to flank the tanks, right, as soon as they could come around the side, they, they couldn't turn fast enough. Uh, and so they were just sitting ducks in these tanks when, when the enemy flanked them. And so military planners learned a valuable lesson in those early days. Uh, they learned that it wasn't enough to just have armor. You had to have the right armor. You had to have the right armor. The passage we're looking at this morning says the same thing. It says the same thing about the Christian life. You and I are in a battle, and if we're going to win this battle, it's not enough just to have armor. We have to have the right armor. We have to have God's armor. Uh, we have come to the best-known passage in the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is the one, if you don't know any other passage in Ephesians, this is the one uh, you're probably going to think of. Uh, it's the armor of God passage, as you heard. And it, it's also the conclusion this is the conclusion to Paul's letter. There, there are some personal remarks in the last four verses. We're going to come back to those next week. But as far as the argument Paul has been making in this letter goes, this passage this morning is the, the conclusion. It's the formal conclusion to the letter. That's why he says, finally, uh, there in verse 10, I'm wrapping it up now. That's, that's what he means. You know, when a, when a preacher says, finally, it usually means they're wrapping it up. And sometimes it just means they're going to talk for 20 more minutes. But, uh, but it should mean you're wrapping up. And, and that's why he says what he says. And, and here's how he concludes. Here's Paul's conclusion uh, to the letter. He, what he's going to do is he's going to answer a question that we should have at this point, right? If we've been reading through Ephesians, there's a question that's echoing in our heads, and the question is, what now? Where do we go from here? Uh, we've learned that God has done these wonderful things for us in Jesus Christ. First three chapters, it's this calling is, is how it's been summarized. And so we have this wonderful calling. And then we've learned that we are to walk worthy of this calling. That's the second three chapters in the book. Uh, it starts with chapter four, verse one. I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. And that's the theme we've been tracing this fall. And, and we believe that. We believe that that's true. We believe that's what God wants us to do, to live worthy of our calling, but there's a question echoing in our heads now, which is, how? How am I going to do it? How am I going to actually live out this new life that I'm called to live in Jesus Christ? And the answer is right there in verse 10. The answer is verse 10. Finally, wrapping it all up now, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today, our ability to do what we've been talking about. Our ability to live in a manner that is worthy of our calling comes from being strong in the Lord's strength. We're not going to do this in our own strength and on our own abilities. We're going to do it in the strength that comes from God. I did not plan it this way when I planned out my sermon schedule, but this is actually a pretty good passage for the Sunday after Veterans Day. And I say that because you can't read these verses without thinking about soldiers, right? Soldiers and battles and, and wars. Uh, that theme runs all through this last section. And I'm going to pick up on that a little bit this morning. I'm not going to belabor it, but I want to pick up on that and think in terms of strategies, because that's really what Paul's given us here. He gives us three battlefield strategies that we need to implement, not in a, a physical war, but in the, in the Christian war, the spiritual war that we're engaged in. So there are three, uh, three strategies for how we're going to be strong in the Lord's strength. This is how we do it. So number one, the first strategy uh, is that we need to stand against the right enemy. You cannot win a war if you don't know who the enemy is, right? You got to know who the enemy is. And that's why it's so important for us to do that, to fight the right enemy in the spiritual war we're involved in. Let's pick up again in verse 10. I want to read the first three verses. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here's how you're going to do it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So verse 11 says, put on God's armor. 
Put on the armor of God. If you're going to stand strong, here's, here's how you do it. Stand strong, here's how. Put on God's armor. Now, he's going to develop that idea more in verse 13, and he'll actually repeat the command with a different verb. We'll get there in a minute. So he says it twice. Verse 11, put on the armor. Verse 13, put on the armor. But before he comes back to it in verse 13, he first he addresses this issue of who the enemy is, because you need the right armor, right? You got to have the right armor for the right enemy. And so, uh, and so he tells us who the enemy is. And that's verses 11 and 12. And here's the crucial thing you have to know. It's that the enemy is spiritual. It's not a physical enemy. It's not a physical enemy. It's a spiritual enemy. Verse 11, he says, uh, we're standing against the schemes of the devil. There's no ambiguity here. We know that this is a spiritual war. The devil, Satan, is a spiritual being. Uh, Then in verse 12, we we learn, if we didn't know it already from the rest of Scripture, that uh, it's not just the devil by himself, that he has a whole organization behind him. Uh, Verse 12 says our struggle or our our wrestling match, it's actually the Greek word for a a, a wrestling, a a hand-to-hand, close combat kind of a situation. Our wrestling is, is not against physical forces. It's not against flesh and blood. Right? It, it's against unseen spiritual powers. And those are the different kinds of words he uses there. It's unseen spiritual powers who are at war with the true God. So let me point out four things. Know thy enemy. Let me point out four things about these enemies. Uh, the first is that they are real. Right? So this is what we learned from verses 11 and 12. The enemy is real. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a metaphor. It's not a creative way to illustrate the darkness of the human heart. Uh, they are real. Right, we are dealing with a real enemy. The scriptures are, again, unambiguous about this. Uh, a second thing that this passage teaches us about these spiritual enemies uh, is that they are evil. Right? So there's no question here about their intent. Uh, he talks about uh, cosmic powers. It's the third one in the list of four. Uh, cosmic powers over this present darkness. And, and that language is a direct connection back to, it's a theme that runs through all through Scripture, but within Ephesians, it, it's back at chapter 5, verse 8, right? Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness. Before you knew Jesus, you were darkness, but now what? Now you are light in the Lord. Uh, but these enemies, they're still darkness. In fact, not, are they, not only are they darkness, they rule the darkness, right? That's the cosmic power, so they run the darkness, so, so they're evil. Verse 12, again, uh, we're wrestling against spiritual forces of evil. It comes right out and uses the word. Uh, spiritual forces are, are evil forces. They do not mean us good. They are not benevolent. They are malevolent. They, they mean us harm. So they are real. They are evil. The third thing we see here uh, is that they are strategic. They are strategic. Verse 11 talks about standing against the schemes of the devil. And that word schemes, you could equally translate it as strategies. In fact, I, I kind of prefer translating it as strategies given the kind of the war theme, the battle theme that runs through this. Uh, it, it's, it's the strategies or the schemes of the devil. Satan isn't making stuff up as he goes along. That's what we learn there. He, he has a plan. He has a strategy. You also see this in verse 12. It says there are rulers, right? There's organization. There are rulers. There are authorities. Uh, The the enemy, and I'm kind of going to go plural and singular back and forth. What you have described here is basically Satan, the devil who is over it all, but then he has this vast organization beneath him. We learn from other places in Scripture. It's basically a third of the created angels, the fallen angels, we would call them. Uh, And they're organized. It is not a sloppy organization. It is a well-run machine is, is, is really the picture you get here with these different kinds of words. Um, there's a strategic, organized plan for destroying humanity. A- and what's more, the devil's been at it a long time, right? He's had a long time to work on this plan. He's been perfecting his strategies for how to destroy people. Uh, thousands of years of trial and error, what works, what doesn't work. And so this enemy is, is strategic. That's what's described for us there in verses 11 and 12. But then the fourth thing we can say about this enemy uh, is that Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger than the devil and all of his forces and all of his organization put together. And where we get that, Paul is going to assume it in our passage, where we get it is from the rest of Ephesians. And I'll just show you one of the verses, but it's Ephesians 1.20. Ephesians 1.20. Do you remember what it said about Jesus? You could just turn the page or two. Uh, Ephesians 1.20, Jesus has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly places where he is now far above 
all rule and authority and power and dominion. And it's, it's some of the same words that are used in chapter 6. Right? So Paul's kind of, he's introduced that there are these spiritual forces. He introduced it back in chapter 1. He told us Jesus is greater than all of them. Now he, he brings them up again, and, and it echoes in our minds. Jesus is greater than all of them. And so, yes, we, we have a spiritual enemy, right? It's, 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 politics is important, but it's not politics. Uh, you could go across the board with that. Uh, we have a spiritual enemy who wants to destroy us. Like Jesus said, the, the enemy wants to lie and kill and destroy, and, and that's what we're facing. But Jesus is greater. He is greater than those enemies. And so, because Jesus is greater, what do we need? Paul was talking about it earlier as he was leading worship. We need God's strength, right? You don't get into this battle against such a well-equipped, uh, well-strategied uh, enemy uh, in your own abilities. You, you come with God's. You put on the Lord's armor. And that's the second strategy that we need to follow. If we're going to stand in the Lord's strength, uh, it's that we need to put on the right armor. We need the right armor. We're fighting a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy, and therefore we need to wear spiritual armor. Now, Paul's already told us this once. He told us in uh, verse 11, right? So he says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Now he comes back to it in verse 13. He says, therefore, Right, so because that's the kind of enemy you're, you're standing against, you can't see him, but he's there. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And that word means resist. You may be able to, able to resist or withstand in the evil day. And having done all, you will be able to stand firm. That's what the armor of God is going to let you do. So uh, verse 11 if I can just look at verse 11 one more time. Verse 11, he uses a, a kind of, I'll call it a generic word for getting dressed. And so he says, put on the armor of God. He says that there in verse 11. And uh, it's actually the same word that we looked at back in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 24, when he said, put on the new self. And I talked about how it's, it's a, the, the picture, the metaphor is getting dressed. So put on the new self. Get Clothe yourself in brand new shiny clothes that fit what God has done for you on the inside. And so it's that word that means kind of put clothing on. Verse 13 is a stronger word. So he's building his case here, and he wants us to see the seriousness of this. In verse 13, he uses a soldier's word. And what I mean by that is the word, when he says take up, it, it doesn't come th real strong through in the English, but you can see the difference between the, between the two. Uh, but it's the word you would use for getting dressed with your equipment, right? So getting a soldier's equipment on. That's the idea with that word. Uh, you don't use the word in verse 13 for putting on a comfy sweater, right? You're going to stay in and watch a movie, so you put on a comfy sweater. This would be the wrong word. This is the word you use to put on your armor, specifically. And so what that does is he's, he's like I say, he's kind of cranking it up here in terms of the seriousness of this battle. You're not getting dressed for a walk in the fields. You're getting dressed for a battle. There's going to, there's going to, be, there's going to be war. There's going to be a battle. Now, before we look at the actual armor, there's a couple of things he says about the armor that I think are very helpful. Uh, and the first is that putting on this armor, what, what we're talking about is being prepared. So putting on the right armor means being, getting prepared for the battle. And where this stands out, it stands out in the image, but I think where you see it in the, in the text is, is this phrase, having done all. It's there in the middle of verse 13, having done all. And so the idea is you're not going to be caught by surprise. Right? You're, you're going to be ready. You've done, every, you've done all. You've, you've done what you need to do to be prepared so that when the attacks come, because you don't know when they're, come, when they're going to come, and so when they come, you're already ready. You've done all. Your armor's already on. And so this whole picture is assuming a preparedness, and it's exhorting us to a preparedness. Be prepared for whenever it comes. I, uh, I had a meeting this past week on Wednesday. Uh, it was a, a pastor's meeting. So we have a local kind of ministerial association where some of the pastors get together. We usually meet once a month. I don't make all of them. I, I try to get to them, though. And um, usually it's pretty kind of tame meeting, you know, a bunch of pastors get together just checking in with each other. Uh, but this month we had a guest. We had a guest at our meeting, and it was the chief of police. 
So Chief Erickson came to our meeting. Many, many of you probably know him. And uh, so the chief of the police department comes to this meeting with pastors. And he was there for a good reason. We weren't in trouble. Uh, he was there to uh, actually to talk to us about the Salvation Army bell ringing. And so uh, of, of all the other duties this, this busy man has, he also has the responsibility. Somehow, somewhere it kind of fell into his lap. He organizes the, uh, the bell ringing for the Salvation Army in front of Walmart, Hy-Vee, Fairway, that kind of thing. And... Um, He's in charge of it. So he came to ask us for help. And he's done this the last few years. He came and he said, you know, can you get people in your churches to, to help with this? And uh, by the way, I signed us up for a shift. I uh, talked to Joe Hoy. So uh, we've got the first Saturday after Thanksgiving there. So I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, but it's warmer. Or at least it should be. So, uh, so if you'd like to help, if you'd like to be part of that, I think Joe, Joe will have a table. There's Joe over there. Joe's got a table in the back. But uh, it's always, it's fun. So uh, yeah, if you'd like to do that, it's November 27th. But anyway, they signed us up. So we, we're doing our part. Anyway, uh, Chief Erickson was our meeting, but, but it was at our meeting. But here's why I tell you about this. I didn't do it to slip a commercial in. Uh, I did it because he was just such a striking figure. Right, so there he is. We're meeting in one of the churches in, in their fellowship hall. And, and he was in all of his gear. He had the full uniform on. He's got his badge. Uh, he's got the vest. You know, you've probably seen some of our, our law enforcement f- folks around. And, you know, and it, it's got all these pockets. I don't even know what he's got in all those pockets. I'm sure, I know it's all important. Uh, and I'm pretty, I mean, I guess I don't know this, but it seems so thick. I have to imagine it's bulletproof. And I couldn't see, but I've been in other meetings with him. I'm pretty sure he had his weapon with him, right? He had that with him. And, and the, the thing of it is, he was meeting with a bunch of pastors. I mean, you're not going to find a more harmless group of people, right? I mean, seriously. I mean, one of them was even in a cast. Shaisha, he'd hurt her foot somewhere. I mean, talk about a harmless group of people. And yet there sits the chief of police with his weapon and his body armor and everything he needs. And the reason is that his job necessitates him being prepared because he never knows. Right? He could have been sitting there and a call comes through and there's you know, some robbery or something else going on. And, and the thing is, is he wouldn't have had to go back to the station, right? Kind of, okay, I'll be there in 10 minutes. I got to go back to the station, you know? Uh, he wouldn't have even had to bother to go open up his trunk, like if somebody had come into the building or something. I was probably the safest I was all week was for the 15 minutes Chief Erickson was with us in the room uh, it, it, because he was ready. He was ready because he doesn't know. That's, it's inherent to his job. He never knows when he's going to be needed, when he's going to be attacked, when he's going to have to go on duty. And, and so he's always ready. And, and that's, that's the picture here for us in this text. Uh, we don't know when the temptations are going to come. We don't know when the doubts are going to come, those fiery darts of accusations and, and so on. And so what are we supposed to do? Like a good soldier, we're supposed to be ready all the time. We're supposed to wear the armor all the time. So be prepared. And then the second part of it is why do we need to be prepared? We need to be prepared so that we can stand. And he really emphasizes this in the text. He uses the, uh, uh, one of the words for stand, or one of the forms of the word for stand, like four different times, I think it is. I know it's at least three in that first section that we're looking at right now. It's so that you can stand. It's verse, right there in the middle of verse 13. Take up the armor so that you will stand firm. Verse 14 is going to say the same thing. It's actually going to be the main verb for the rest of the passage. Stand. Stand, therefore. That's why you need the armor. You need the armor so you can stand. To appreciate the force of that comment, you need to know just a little bit about ancient warfare. And uh, I, I don't know if, I'm sure this is still true somewhat today, but it was very true. It was much more so in the ancient world. The way they fought battles, it was absolutely essential for an infantry soldier. Now, ca- cavalry, cavalry, cavalry was a different thing. Um, but for infantry soldiers, really, you could make the case the most important thing for them was to simply stay on their feet. They had to stay on their feet, especially when you were in close combat, when the lines would come together. Uh, you had to, and the whole, really one of the big goals was to knock the other guys down. Because when a soldier fell to the ground, he may, that may very well be the end of him. Because they would fight with these spears and also with swords. The spears aren't in this passage, but the swords are. And once you're down on the ground, you are very, very vulnerable to your enemy's swords and shields. And so the most important thing was to stand. And, and I think this is driving Paul's language here. He says that's how it is for us spiritually. No matter what the devil throws at us, no matter what comes our way, we have to stand. We have to hold our ground. And, and that's where the armor comes in. That's what the armor is going to help us to do. The armor helps us stand. 
Now, I'm going to read the, kind of the core now of this passage, verses 14 through 17, in just a second. And uh, you, could, you could probably do a series where you spent one sermon on each one of these. I'm not going to do it that way, but I'm, I'm going to take us through them. But uh, let me just kind of paint the picture here, because I think this, is, this always helps me with this passage. Uh, a lot of scholars think, and it seems a very logical sort of thing to me, that Paul is drawing from, is drawing from a real soldier. So Ephesians is one of the prison epistles. It was written when he was in, uh, under house arrest, is our best guess. Uh, but we know he was in custody. He was in house arrest in Rome. So he wasn't in a deep, dank prison. That comes later in his life. But at the end of the book of Acts, you read about this two-year house arrest period where he was in a house that, wouldn't you know it, he had to pay for. He had to rent this house. And, and, and he had some degree of freedom. He could receive visitors and so on. But there was always a soldier there. That was the nature of Roman house arrest, and he was waiting basically for the emperor to find some time out of his busy schedule to see him. And uh, that's irony, by the way, or sarcasm. Um, they, they just left him there to languish. But anyway, he had a soldier, and so there would be this soldier. And a lot of scholars think that he's kind of looking at this soldier, and it's informing what he writes here. And, and one of the reasons we think that is that several of the words he uses, they're not kind of like the word for a shield, for example. He uses a specific word for a Roman kind of shield. Same thing with the sword. It's a specific sword that the Romans used. And so uh, there are some, actually, and we don't have time to explore them, but there are some Old Testament passages that talk about God having armor. There's some stuff in, I think, one of the prophets and some of the Psalms too. So there is this kind of idea of God having armor that he's now going to give to his people. And that also influences this passage. But he's probably looking at this soldier going, okay, yeah, the helmet, that's really interesting. And, and the, the sword that he left over there by the door because he doesn't need it because, you know, all, all these different things that, that he would be thinking about. So uh, now let's read this and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the Roman equipment and then we'll apply it to ourselves. So verse 14, he says, stand therefore, here's how you're going to stand, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, taking up or take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So there are six pieces of armor, six pieces of armor here. And before we take them individually, let me just say this about them. You need them all. That's absolutely, what does it say? Take up the whole armor of God, right? Imagine a soldier who tries to go into battle and he's like, I'm just, I just need four, right? I'll, 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 I'll take all the rest, but I'll skip the helmet, right? He's going to regret that, isn't he? Take all the armor. So, so this isn't a pick and choose list. This is a, here's the whole outfit and here's, here's what you need. You need to put the whole thing. So here it is, six things. Uh, first, we need the belt of truth. The belt of truth, he says. Now, for a Roman soldier... For a Roman soldier, it all started with the belt. Right? That's what, you know, so he'd already be wearing his, his basic tunic, you know, kind of civilian clothes, if you will. But then if he was going to get dressed for battle, there's a battle coming, or he's on duty for guard duty, something like that, first thing he would do is he'd put on his belt. And it was kind of this thick leather belt, and it would cinch around his waist, and it would do a couple of things. It would actually, he would tuck his, his, um, his tunic into it, because if you're going into battle, you don't want to be tripping over your own clothes. And so they would kind of cinch, it, uh, cinch their clothes up into it so that they would have freedom of movement. Uh, another thing the belt did was it actually was the anchor for the breastplate. So we're going to get to the breastplate in a minute, this part that would protect the torso. That wasn't just a free-floating thing. It actually attached to the belt so that it would be good and sturdy. And then you'd also stick your weapon in your belt, right? So, you'd, you know, so this was an important, you say, oh, your belt, whatever, right? Um, belt's a real crucial piece of equipment, which is why he starts with it. And what does Paul say it is for us? You see the Holy Spirit guiding him in this. For us, it's truth. Right, that's what you, you put around your waist, you fasten around your waist to hold everything else together, the belt of truth. And you can look at this a couple of different ways, and I think they're both correct. I don't think we have to choose between them. Uh, one, one level we're talking about truth is that sense in which God is truth. Right? It's the truth of Christ. Jesus said, I am the truth. So it's Christian truth, it's sound doctrine, it's, it's the truth of God. It's, it's Christ's truth, the truth that is Christ. Uh, that's our foundation. That holds everything else together, right? if you think of that, that picture of a belt. 
Uh, I think it's also appropriate, though, to, to, to understand this in terms of that worthy walk we've been talking about, you know, and so being truthful. We were told in chapter 5 to put away all lies, right? Put away falsehood. Remember that? I didn't write down which verse it was, but, but put away, I know it was in chapter 5, put away all falsehood. And so when we gird ourselves with the belt of truth, we're fastening that around our waist, that's going to help us stand because we're truthful people. And we're known as truthful people. And, you know, the wonderful thing about being a truthful person is that you don't get trapped in the, you don't get caught in the trap of your own lies. Right? I mean, that's one of the ways so many temptations come is when we are not truthful. And so it kind of starts with this foundational garment, <clears throat> garment, the, the belt of truth. The second piece he's going to talk about here is, is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, for a, a soldier at that time period, uh, this breastplate uh, it, it's not just a little thing that kind of covers your chest. It's, it's actually a, a, it's almost like body armor, right? I guess that's a good term. It's like uh, ancient body armor. It would be lowered down over the shoulders and uh, kind of attach, at, hang over the shoulders. And then, like I said, it would attach to the belt. I'm not sure how they did it, but it would attach to the belt. And, and so what it would protect was his chest, his sides, and his back. And actually, it extended down, extended down to about mid-thigh. And so what that thing is protecting is it's protecting all those vital organs. That's what it's protecting, the, the heart, the, the, the soul, right? The, where all the, all the good stuff is. It's, it's protecting those vital, those vital organs. Sometimes they were made of leather. More often, though, for the kind of the organized Roman army by this period in history, they were bronze uh, soldier or uh, officers would have ones of chain mail, even better ones. And so it was this protective metal garment that would protect them when they were in battle. Uh, for us, spiritually, the breastplate of righteousness is doing what I just said. It's protecting those spiritual organs, right? Those vital spiritual organs. And so we're talking about you know, our, protecting our hearts, protecting our souls. And what protects our, our hearts is the, is the righteousness, right? The breastplate of righteousness. Again, understand it at two levels. Uh, one in terms of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, His righteousness. Uh, when, when the enemy's attacks come, we don't say, oh yeah, look at those good works I did. No, we say, look at His good works. Right? His good work on the cross is, it's the righteousness of Christ applied to us. That's uh, what protects us when the enemy attacks us. Uh, but then it, it's also, like with truth, it's also our pursuit of righteousness. And so again, it goes to that, you know, so many of those things in this worthy walk we've been talking about the last couple of months, you know, walking in the light, remember we talked about that, and, and um, walking in love. It's these, these uh, spirit-empowered acts of righteousness. That's part of what protects us too, right? When we obey God, when we say yes to God and no to temptation, that protects us. That resolution to do that and that accumulated series of choices of doing that protects us when those temptations come. So the breastplate of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, and then as it manifests in righteousness lived out, that protects us too. The third piece of armor that he talks about is the shoes of gospel readiness. Shoes of gospel readiness. Now, I said it a minute ago, if you lose your feet in battle in, the ancient, in ancient warfare, there's a pretty good chance you're not going home. If you lose your feet, uh, especially in close combat, right? There's no 10-second timeout, right? You fall down on the, okay, I'll wait till you get up again. They, they, that was not how it worked. And so shoes were really, really important in ancient warfare. And some historians suggest this is one of the reasons the Romans were so successful at their time in history. They had actually perfected, uh, at least in their, their time period, uh, they, they had perfected the military boot, and so they had these boots. The Romans had developed these boots, and they would, for, for one thing, they would lace up uh, up around the, the calf, and so there, there was no danger you're going to lose this thing in, in the mud or something like that. It was, it was securely attached. It was made of leather, and so it, that made it supple. It would conform to the foot, uh, and so they would become comfortable on long marches. Rome, Roman armies were actually um, infamous from the enemy's perspective for the long marches they could do. A lot of it had to do with, with their footwear. Uh, and then most importantly, this was the real innovation that uh, most others hadn't figured out. They, they actually, we would call them cleats. They actually, their, their boots that they would wear into battle were studded with bits of metal, like little metal nails that would come out the bottom of the boot to give them traction, right? Almost like a, like a sprinter who would wear, wear cleats when running a race. And what that would do is it would give them firm footing, right? Especially when they, a lot of times ancient warfare involved these shoving matches where, where um, 
different lines would come against each other, and the guy who's got the better footing can, can, can hold his ground. And so those, those shoes, what those shoes did was they gave those soldiers a firm foundation for the battle. And Paul says, that's your firm foundation. Your foundation is the gospel of peace the gospel of peace in and through Jesus Christ. That's what we stand on. We stand on the gospel. And he talks about readiness. It's the readiness of the gospel. And so it's close at hand. It's not just something we learned a while ago and kind of, you know, how do I, oh, it's what are those four laws again? Or how does somebody come to? It's, it's ready. It's there. It's there if we have opportunity to share it with somebody. And it's there when we need it because we need the gospel, right? We, we preach our, we, I preach the gospel to myself every day because I need it. And, and you're in the same boat as I am. And so it's that idea of, of it's, it's at hand, that commitment to the gospel. That's what we stand on, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, uh, the fourth piece of armor he talks about is, is the shield of faith. And as I'm kind of describing these, you can kind of see there's a lot of overlap. I think we make a mistake if we try to atomize these and separate them from each other. There's just a lot of overlap here. But, but he talks about the shield of faith. Verse 16, uh, in all circumstances, right, whatever's happening in the battle, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, the Romans had uh, two basic kinds of shields. They had a small one that would kind of you know, be a, a small one kind of for skirmishes and hand-to-hand. They, and then they also had this shield called the, the great shield, and the great shield was the size of a door. And that's the word Paul uses here. He uses the specific word for that door-sized shield. And so what he's creating for us is this picture of, of a great protection, right? It's a thorough protection, and, um, and, and it's actually the, it's related to the Greek word for a door. I guess I said that. And so what he could do is he could hide behind it. And this would happen sometimes. Um, I don't know if you watch historical movies, you'll see this sort of thing. Uh, there's a famous battle scene at the beginning of Gladiator where this happens, uh, where um, the, the enemy is firing all these arrows at the Roman legions, and they just form up with their shields, and they just make a wall. And all of these arrows are coming in. And the, even the flaming part, you know, Paul was spot on with his military strategy here. Uh, the enemies had kind of figured out, and this, people had been doing this for centuries, but they would actually take their arrows and dip them in tar and then light them and then fire them. And to counteract that, the Romans, and I don't know the, 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 uh, the industry of it or the, the technology, but they had developed their shields so that they would actually quench the shields. I'm not sure if it was the material or how they coated them, but, but the Roman shields actually were, would extinguish those fiery darts when they would, they would come in. They were kind of flame retardant is the term I suppose we might use. And he says, that's what your faith does. That's what your faith in Jesus Christ is. It shields you from the enemy's attacks, right? When those arrows of, of doubt or, or fear or anxiety, those flaming arrows of greed, or lust, or, or rage, or lies, when these things come soaring out at us through the air, uh, the best way to deal with them is to hide. <laughs> hide behind your shield. Hide behind your faith. And the idea is, yeah, those temptations are strong, right? They're fiery darts. They're dangerous. But my shield is stronger. Jesus is stronger. And so I'm going to, what, what does faith do? Faith fixes its eyes on Jesus. You know, yeah, that temptation is tempting. That's why we call them temptations. Uh, but Jesus is better. And so fix your faith on him, right? It's not just faith unattached. It's faith in him. Fix your eyes on him. That's the faith that shields you from those attacks. The fifth part of the armor is the helmet. He talks about the helmet of salvation. Uh, it's obvious why soldiers needed helmets, right? You, the last thing you need when you're in battle is for somebody to clunk you in the side of the head and, you know, to get a concussion or worse. And so the Romans, you've probably seen these in movies and so on, the Romans had this pretty well-developed helmet and it kind of protected the back of the neck and, and it was a good sturdy helmet that they would wear to protect their heads. And, and your helmet, Paul says, is, is your salvation. He calls it the helmet of salvation. And, and it's a great picture when you remember what you do with your head. I mean, not only is it this vital organ that we got to have or we're done for, but, but we think with our heads, right? We think with our heads. And so I think what he's saying is, is our salvation is the lens through which we look at our lives. Look at your life through the lens of your salvation. That's another way to stand firm against the attacks. Think about yourself the way God thinks about you. Not the way the devil wants you to think about you or the world wants you to think about you. Think about yourself the way he does. Right? You're not defined by your past mistakes. You're not defined by your families. You're not defined by your failures. Uh, you and I are defined by our salvation. 
We're, we're defined by who he says he is. And, and that's why those first three chapters are so important. Do you remember the middle part of chapter two? Uh, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses, but now, here's your helmet of salvation, but now we are made alive together with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in those heavenly places. That's the helmet of salvation that we wear when we're in the battle. And then the sixth piece of armor is the sword of the spirit. That's the last one he covers. Uh, A Roman soldier's sword uh, had two functions. Uh, It was offensive and defensive. It actually operated both ways. And so, yes, it was an attack weapon when you would go in for for an attack, but there's uh, very much a defensive. It's almost like a second shield if you you know how to use it. And so, uh, and and I think he's talking here about that kind of that parrying sense of the shield uh, there at the end of that verse 17. So he says, take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. He's not going to leave us to wonder what this one is and look it up in the Old Testament. He just comes right out and says, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. If you want a great example of this, go read Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted. How does Jesus parry the attacks of Satan against him? It's the word of God. It's the word of God again and again and again. And It's the same for us. When the accusations come, the lies, the doubts, the temptations, defend yourself with God's word. So, we need to defend ourselves, and that's what we need. We defend ourselves against the enemy's attacks by putting on the armor of God, by remembering who we are and what he's done for us, and and all these things we've been learning about all through this letter. A lot of these things, Paul's just pulling them together. That's why I said it's the conclusion. He's pulling them all together. And what all that does is it brings us to the third strategy. The third strategy is to fight with the right enemy. Excuse me, with the right weapon. Fight with the right weapon. And that's what you get in the last three verses of this passage, verses 18, 19, and 20. You see, not only, not only do we put on the armor to defend ourselves, but we also go on the attack. It's a battle, and we go on the attack. And I, that's how I understand verses 18, 19, and 20. Let me read them. He says, praying at all times. Some translations will start a new idea here. Pray at all times. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is where we take the fight to the enemy. This is where we take it to him. The armor's mostly defensive, but when you, when you pray, now you go on the attack. That's where the battle is won. It's won on your knees and in the prayer closet. Uh, This last part, uh, if I live long enough to preach through Ephesians again, I'm going to do a separate sermon for this last part. Uh, Verses 18, 19, 20, I realized, I mean, this is a whole other sermon that we could look at. Uh, What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to just fly through, but I actually, when I look at verses 18, 19, and 20, I see six things. See why it's a different sermon? Six things that God tells us here about prayer. It's actually a great, dense little passage on, on how God wants us to think about prayer. And, and in this context, it's taking the battle to the enemy. So just six things. I, I won't spend much time on any of them, but write them down or think about them. Uh, the first thing we see is that God wants us to be consistent. He wants us to be consistent in our prayer lives. Pray at all times. And that doesn't mean, you know, it's like that passage in Thessalonians, which says pray continually. It doesn't mean, you know, you never stop to eat or sleep. Uh, what it, it means is that we pray consistently. Pray at all times. Pray consistently. And so what he's describing here is a life that's infused, a daily life that's infused with prayer. Right? And so when temptations come, we pray. When uh, we're happy, we pray. Right? When we're sad, we pray. When we're confused, we pray. When we're bored, we pray. How much trouble do we get into when, we, we, when we're bored? Uh, when we're bored, we pray. So we're consistent. Be consistent in your prayer life. Number two, uh, God wants our prayers to be spirit-led. He talks about that too. Uh, he, he says spirit, prayers that are led by the Spirit. And so we don't just jump in and start praying. I think it's, it's actually good practice. It honors the text. It honors the Bible to start with, Holy Spirit, help me. Right? We, we've got some time here. I got up earlier today. We're going to spend some time in prayer. Guide me, Holy Spirit. Right? Spirit-led prayers. That's the second one. Third, uh, I'm going to use the word varied. God wants our prayers to be varied. And you see that in verse 18 where he says, uh, with all prayer and supplication. He uses these two different words and he amplifies them for, with the word all. And I read that and I think the idea is that we're supposed to mix it up. 
right? You mix it up. It's not just the same kind of rote prayer day after day after day. It's, it's praying for different things and different people, and it's mixing in praise and thanksgiving and praying through the Psalms sometimes and praying, you know, sometimes praying for the government and praying for missionaries and all these different things. Sometimes we just listen. That's part of it too. You know, when he says pray in all these varied ways, uh, sometimes we just sit and listen to what the Holy Spirit might be, might be saying in, you know, on the inside, you know, that, that sort of thing. So, so prayer, God wants our prayers to be varied. Don't get stuck in a rut. Number four, he wants our prayers to be persistent. Uh, to that end, middle of verse 15, uh, keep alert. What a great word for a, a war imagery, right? For a soldier, stay alert <laughs> with all perseverance. So don't fall asleep at the wheel of prayer. Right? Don't fall asleep. Some, some prayers get answered right away. Those are wonderful when they happen. But some prayers, you've got to stick with it. Sometimes it takes a long time, not because God's arm is too short, but because his plan uh, involves you sticking with it and me sticking with it. So, so that's another thing. Be persistent. Stay alert. Persevere. Keep on praying. Number five, uh, God wants us to pray for each other. He wants us to pray for each other. Don't just pray for you and yours. Uh, pray for other people too. That's what he says. Make supplication for all the saints, right? It's, it's pray for everybody. Now you're really taking the battle to the enemy, right? When we start doing that, we are really taking the battle to the enemy. We are ambushing him, right? You ambush the devil and his minions when you pray for someone he would never expect you to pray for. He expects you to pray for yourself, right? He expects you to pray for your children and your grandchildren. But when you pray for that person in your small group, Right? You wrote it down on the piece of paper, you stuck it in your Bible, and he figured, yeah, you'll just leave it there in the Bible until next Thursday or next Wednesday, whenever the group meets. But no, when you take that out and you pray, oh, now you're doing battle. Right? Or when you pray for that cranky neighbor or the leaders in your church or that cousin from whom you're estranged or you pray for one of the many politicians you, you don't like so much. Uh, when we pray for those people, we're doing battle. Right? So he says, pray, pray uh, for all the saints. So you see that emphasis there, especially on, on fellow believers, right? If you, you know, I mentioned politicians a minute ago. If you know of some Christian believers, there are some, they're out there. Uh, Christians who are in, in levels of government, pray for those people, right? Pray for all the saints. Uh, and then finally, uh, God wants us to pray for his priorities. Pray for his, and, and you see this in Paul's own example. Paul gives us an example here at the end. Uh, he gets vulnerable, in the last two verses, he gets vulnerable. He says, pray for all the saints. And he says, oh yeah, pray for me too. Pray also for me, he says. And he's got two prayer requests. I think they're such great prayer requests. Neither one of them is any, has anything to do with getting out of prison. He's in prison. He's already told them several times, and he's going to tell them again at the end of verse 20 that he is in chains. But he does not say, pray that they'll let me out of prison. He doesn't pray for his physical health. He's, we know he has some kind of trouble with his eyes that uh, bothered him all through his life. That's certainly what the impression we get from his letters. He doesn't say, pray for my eyesight. He doesn't pray for material prosperity. His prayer request for himself is, pray that I will have the right words to say and the boldness to say them. That's what he asks the Ephesians to pray. Pray that I'll proclaim the gospel clearly and pray that I will proclaim it boldly. If you want to see lots of answers to your prayers, pray for the things the Bible says God wants to happen. Right? And you pray for this other stuff too. I'm not discouraging personal prayers and so on. We're absolutely supposed to pray for that stuff. Jesus said so. But then pray for the things that are obviously God's priorities in the Word. Pray for boldness in evangelism. Pray that lost souls will come to know Jesus. Pray that evil will be driven back. Pray that goodness will flourish. Pray that the Holy Spirit will bring a revival in your lifetime. Wouldn't you like to see that? Pray that the Holy Spirit will bring a revival. Pray that the gospel will spread. We know this is what God wants. Pray that the gospel will spread to every tribe and every nation on this planet. That's a big part of how we take the fight to the enemy. We pray in ways that are focused on God's priorities, on the things that we know God wants. On June 6th, 1944, uh, the Allied forces, uh, led, the United, led by the United States, launched the greatest amphibious invasion in history. And I think, I believe that still stands to this day. Uh, the D-Day invasion, the greatest amphibious invasion in history. Uh, the Allies attacked the beaches in Normandy, France, northwestern France, and the goal was to open up a second front, get a beachhead in western Europe, and press on and drive back the Nazis, right? That was the goal of that famous battle. There's lots of information about the, the military stuff that happened that day. You could, there's... A, 
so much information about uh, the military battle that happened. What's lesser known is the part that prayer played in that invasion. Uh, a few years ago, uh, a, a guy named Eric Metaxas, some of you might recognize his name, Metaxas did a, a commentary uh, on, and he called it something, it was something like the spiritual battle of, of D-Day, some, some title like that. And uh, he, he describes what happened, uh, especially here in the United States on that day. Uh, because of the time difference, so the battle was a, a, a dawn attack. It was a, they attacked at dawn over there in France. And because of the time difference, the battle was already well underway when most Americans were waking up. And so it was kind of Americans were waking up to this news on the radio that this battle was enjoined, that this invasion, a lot of people expected it would come, but now it was finally happening. And an amazing thing, Metaxas said, happened that day. People across the nation prayed. Uh, let, me, let me just read what he said. This is, his, uh, this is from the, the commentary piece. He says, As word of the assault trickled out, Americans began to pray. Stores closed, and prayer services were swiftly organized in small towns and big cities across the nation. Photographs taken on that day, photos taken on June 6th, show just how widespread these prayers were. Uh, one picture shows a sign in the window of a novelty button shop reading, sorry, no covered buttons today. We're praying for the success of the invasion. Uh, a sign in front of a church said, come in and pray for allied victory, hourly intercessions on the hour. Another photo shows uh, Americans in a synagogue bowing their heads in prayer. Uh, another, uh, at a noon mass, we, we see men and women on their knees fervently praying. Uh, in New York City, Mayor LaGuardia took to the airwaves, urging citizens, quote, to send forth their prayers to Almighty God to bring total victory in this great and valiant struggle. In Washington, President Roosevelt, who himself had sons in uniform, urged Americans to join him in prayer for all the nation's sons. And then he prayed over the radio. <laughs> With thy blessing, he prayed, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. And they did. You know enough of the history. They did. The Allies took the beaches. They drove the Germans back. And less than a year later, they defeated what was arguably one of the most evil regimes in the history of the world. Now, there's no way to know what part those prayers played in that victory. There's no way to know for sure, not this side of heaven anyway. But according to Ephesians 6, according to Ephesians 6, there's no doubt in my mind that those prayers played a part. What does he say? We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's true in the world's story, right? That's true in the big picture stuff. And it's true in your story too. So be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we pray that you would help us do exactly that. That is my prayer this morning for myself for every uh, brother and sister in this room and the ones who are watching online, would you help us to stand firm in the strength of your might, not in our own might. That's what the, you know, that was uh, where we part way with the Roman soldiers. They, they stood strong in their own might, uh, but we stand strong in your might. And we pray that you would do that for us. Uh, help us to remember the reality of this spiritual battle, not to become obsessed with it in an unhealthy way, but to, to take it seriously. Uh, help us to put on the full armor to equip ourselves with these, these marks of godliness that we've talked about this morning and all through this letter so far. And uh, Lord, help us to take our prayer life seriously, to take the battle to the enemy uh, by, uh, by praying at all times and in every, every way with you at the center of it. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.